Welcome to the fourth season of PEBC's Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. My name is Michelle Morris-Jones, and I am honored to bring you these compelling conversations. This season's theme is scaffolding. Guests will be sharing all the ways in which we can create scaffolds for students, teachers, and schools that promote agency, equity, and understanding. Of course, we will continue to link these conversations to the strands of the PEBC teaching framework by focusing on community, planning, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment. Thank you so much for listening in. Gitavara Darajan was born and raised in India. She is the co-author of the award-winning Save Me a Seat and My Bindi. She has worked with children all over the world and currently teaches fourth grade at Riverside Elementary in Princeton, New Jersey. Today, Gita is joining me to talk about the ways in which rich text allows students to develop empathy for others, explore challenging topics or issues, find joy, and to deepen their comprehension skills. As illustrated in the PEBC teaching framework, providing students with life-worthy materials that mirror the real world, time to read and explore, and lively discourse create classroom communities that support agency, equity, and understanding. Gita, welcome to the Phenomenal Teaching Podcast. You are truly a gifted storyteller, educator, and advocate for all children. It's such a pleasure to have you today, and I just would love to start by hearing your story. Thank you so much for having me here, Michelle, and uh, thank you to PEBC for hosting this wonderful podcast. Um, So about me, um, I moved to this country about 10 years ago, on May 13th, 2010, to be exact. And um, I went on to do my master's at Teachers College in 2011, which is where I met Sarah Weeks, who was my professor, and we ended up writing a book together. And so I discovered my writing voice at the age of 40, which is astounding and bizarre to me because I never thought I would be a writer at all in my, in my, uh, in my life, in my dreams. I never thought I would be a writer. But I've been a teacher for more than 20 years. And my teaching life actually started at the age of 23, Uh, when I was in Dubai with my husband and I'd gotten the opportunity of teaching English in a Pakistani school to children from grades one to eight, armed with nothing but a textbook. And so that's where I discovered that teaching could be this innovative, experimental and joyful profession. And it's also the place where I realized that the borders created by nations and people fade away in the classroom. So I've stuck with teaching ever since. I went back to India and taught in two international schools. I was an administrator in one of them. And then in 2010, moved to the US. And currently I'm teaching fourth grade at Riverside Elementary in Princeton. I taught second grade for very many years. And when the pandemic hit, you know, that was the year I moved to fourth grade. So it was a very interesting time to move to fourth grade and embrace uh, you know, teaching online and digital teaching and all of that. So that's my story. And as far as my writing life goes, I, as I told you earlier, I met Sarah Weeks. She was my professor at uh, Teachers College. And we ended up writing Save Me a Seat together. And that's where I also explored my writing voice. And um, my new book, My Bindi, is coming out in uh, August 2022 on the 16th of August. And the sequel to it, My Sari, comes out in 2024. Wow. So, Gita, it's so interesting to hear your story. And I can't wait to dive in today to talk about both of those identities that you just shared with us. 
you're a gifted educator and you have that passion that you bring to your classroom for students really from all around the world. And then also you have your identity as an author and you know, your books are all about real kids experiencing real life. And you know, Save Me a Seat has received so much praise and awards since its publication. I mean, it's one of the most popular children's books. And I just recently reread it and I was laughing and crying and connecting with each and every character and developing empathy um, for so many different perspectives. And as I was kind of culling through and preparing for a conversation today, I stumbled across a review and I thought this particular reader really captured the essence of that text. And they said, it's funny and profound and filled with invaluable lessons about bullying, friendship, individuality, family, and fitting in. And the story is told from different perspectives, but it also makes it a brilliant book about perspectives. And I would just love to dive into, you know, you as an author, you said you came to writing, you know, about 10 years ago or so, 12 years ago. And how have your personal experiences and your professional experiences come together in that role or that identity as a children's author? That is such a great question. Thank you for asking that, Michelle because um, writing came to me so late. So I've always wondered how that happened. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I've, always, I've tried to trace it back to what happened in my childhood. You see, I grew up with my grandparents and my grandfather was a really good storyteller. And he would gather us all in the afternoon, you know, all his grandchildren, my brother and I, and my two cousins, we all lived with my grandparents. So he would gather us on Sunday afternoons and he would tell us stories and we would be characters in his stories and we would role play his stories. And I think his storytelling voice was just stuck in my head. And without knowing it, he was preparing me to be a storyteller mm. and in essence, preparing me to be a writer. So at the age of 40, when I got the chance, I think that storytelling voice suddenly took flight. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that I feel I do bring into the classroom every single day is to bring the storytelling culture into my classroom. I get kids to tell stories all the time. We tell stories about our lives and we tell we do you know, made up storytelling and we have so much fun around it. It's playful and joyful. And I think that I do bring into my teaching, you know, and it, it played into my writing life and I kind of bring that into my teaching life as well. The other thing that I think um, really influences both my teaching and my writing is that when I moved to in, from India to the US, it was a big transition for me. I came from a position of strength and power and privilege to a large extent. I come from a community that is privileged. I come from a caste that is privileged. I, was, I come from an educated background. I came from a position of being an, an administrator of a school in India. And I moved to the US where nobody cared about any of those identities, hmm. right? I had to start from scratch. And suddenly it hit me that I was powerless and helpless almost. And that feeling of powerlessness and helplessness is a very, very uncomfortable and frustrating feeling. And I started to imagine what it might be for someone who is in, in that position every single day. Hmm. I think my stories bring out that pain a little bit, but it also brings out the joy of, of telling stories as well. So, you know, there has to be some humor and joy, but at the same time, I also want to handle the pain 
that people go through when they feel helpless or they are new to a situation or they have to work all the way from the bottom or be in a situation where they are frustrated all the time or they have to prove themselves all the time. So if you look at Save Me a Seat, Ravi's trying to prove he's smart, but he's failing. And then he starts to get feel very frustrated. And that's when he sees Joe for the first time. Because before that, he thinks he is coming from this position of power and he sees Dylan Samreen, who is the other protagonist in the book, as the person that he needs to align with, but then realizes that that's not the case. So I think my storytelling is a lot, to a large extent influenced by my own experience of moving from, a, from India to this country and feeling powerless and helpless. And I, I feel I also bring that into my classroom where I try my best to listen to all children's voices and to give them all a chance to feel empowered and in charge. Uh, that's, that's beautiful, Gita. And I think about just your own personal experiences and bringing that, like you said, that discomfort and that pain into a place of, of understanding and empathy, but then also of joy and humor. Because as you, you know, noted in, in Save Me a Seat, there's a lot of humor and um, it, it reads like so authentic, right? It's like so kid-based. And so it's clear that you spend, you know, so much time with children and absolutely understand their feelings and, and the way in which they, they might view the world. But you also bring in this very, very incredibly complex topic of what is it like to be new in a space or what is it like to be a little bit different than others? And so... You know, you've talked a little bit about how your writing life and your writing identity and your teacher identity intersect. When you think about, you know, some of the work that you do in your classroom, what might that look like and sound like? So one of the things that um, I do in the classroom, like I said, it's a lot of storytelling and that's a lot of storytelling around identity. So a lot of identity building exercises where we are talking about uh, the different selves that we bring to uh, to the school, the selves that we hide from others, the selves that we are proud of, the selves that we are not proud of. So we talk a lot about this in the, in the beginning of the school year, which definitely feeds into writing. But parallelly, I'm also reading aloud texts and asking kids to do the same work with the characters in the text. So we do a lot of work around what kind of character is this person and what versus this other person. We have a lot of debates about the characters in the text. And this leads to um, more awareness. Sometimes mm. there's heat conversations. And one of the things I kind of try to veer kids towards is not focusing on the debating and who's winning this conversation, but actually thinking about what is the other side telling me that I should listen to and become more aware of. Because we all bring our own experiences to the text that we are reading. And I want, I'm hoping that students through these conversations, that children through these conversations can see that there is a viewpoint that is different from theirs and that nobody's viewpoint is right or wrong. So I think facilitating those conversations then helps 
kids not just understand the text better, but then they start to understand each other better. So there's identity work that is happening during morning meeting time. There is reading comprehension work rooted in text that's happening during reading workshop time. And then there's grand conversations around those texts happening during read aloud time. Uh, or And then that's leading to from text, uh, from within text, to outside of the text where you're making text to self and then text to world conversations. And that actually leads to a more uh, understanding, more aware and more empathetic classroom. Wow, absolutely. I love the way that you layered those different experiences for kids. Because you think about that morning meeting and that opportunity to dive into whatever seems to be happening, but also into topics and issues. You also are thinking about the role of Read Aloud and the role of Reader's Workshop and students really having those opportunities to grapple with real life issues through text. And, you know, with, um, you know, Save Me a Seat, you created a text that um, is a great fodder for so many conversations and so many perspectives. I'd love to hear a little bit about your latest works. You have My Bindi coming out this summer and you have My Sari coming out in a couple of years. Um, so when you think about those two, what kind of grand conversations do you hope that they're going to elicit for, for your young readers? Right, so My Bindi is the story of a little Divya who is very reticent to wear the Bindi to school and her mother convinces her that the Bindi is uh, a powerful symbol that will protect her and uh, look inside her and that she should try to wear it to school. So she wears it with a lot of trepidation because she thinks the kids in school will make fun of her. But of course, she is totally surprised by their reaction because they don't do that. And then she gets the courage to actually share the significance of the Bindi with her class and feel proud of who she is and where she comes from and to embrace her culture. So it's a universal story. It's specific, but it's also universal. To, um, and, and the message I think that I wanted to convey through my Bindi is that, that we should be proud of all of our identities because you know even adults bring... We, we hide some parts of ourselves, right? We pass some parts of ourselves. But it, what if we could bring all parts of ourselves to our workplace? What if kids could bring all them, all their identities to school? Wouldn't it be a much more authentic place for them to be in? So that's what the story is, is trying to convey. And I think we could have conversations about what are the parts you bring to school? What are the parts you hide and why? And how can we make school a safer space for you so you can bring your authentic self here? So we could have those kinds of conversations. We could also have conversations about the role of adults in this. So if you look at the mother, she's convincing Divya to wear the bindi, but she's completely unaware of the uh, environment and the life that Divya is navigating in school because she is home in her safe space she doesn't know the space that Divya is navigating in school. So we can talk about the role of the parents and how they are completely unaware of what's happening in school. We can talk about the role of the teacher who invited Divya to talk about her, uh, her bindi. And what if she had not? What if she had kept quiet about it? Then would Divya have shared about her bindi? Would Divya have felt empowered? So we could have we could have all these conversations uh, in the classroom, and then think about how we can therefore make the classroom a space where children can bring their authentic selves. Mm. Wow! And that's and that's what we want, 
We want each and every child to feel that inclusivity and that agency. You know, get it, you've brought up some really interesting, I think, constructs or ideas today. Um, the role of power and privilege, um, right. the ways in which children are asked to take risks every day in different contexts, um, the concept of hope and joy and feeling free and, and having agency. Um, but I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk about kind of the, the intersection of two ideas. Um, you know, you believe that stories and texts are avenues for celebration and joy, as well as ways for children or adults to engage in some difficult conversations or to explore, like you said, some topics that have a little heat. Um, so I guess my question is, you know, how do we dive into those difficult topics while maintaining that joy and hope, but also trying to, to stay out of that guilt or shame construct? Because I think some teachers are really struggling right now with kind of where those lines are or how do I, how do I support this work or what does this work even look like for me as an adult? Right, I, I agree with you that there's so much of guilt and shame right now that we are grappling with um, because of the world we are living in. I mean, COVID and the mental health crisis that it's created both for teachers and children in the classroom. And then you have the racial inequities that are happening, the achievement gap that's widening. There's so much going on. And I think that um, one of the things that I did for myself in order to be able to do this work of of having difficult conversations, but also at the same time, creating a sense of hope and joy. I think the first thing I did was to study and study collaboratively, you know, mm. find team, uh, find members in the school, find other teachers who want to do this work, team up with them, read. We started with book clubs in our school. And I, I, I remember we first read The Person You Mean to Be by Dolly Chuk. Then we read Cornelius Minor and we read Sarah Ahmed and Goldie Mohammed. And then we thought about how can we take this work and try it out in the classroom? And it's never going to be perfect, but how can we try it out? So we try, I tried it out in the classroom. And of course, I, you have to be vulnerable. You have to tell children that you know, this might go wrong and they should see that you're making revisions right there. They should be involved in the revision making process as well. I, I remember this one conversation when uh, I read out this, read aloud this book called uh, Miss Apple Pie. And in that book, I think there is a main character who is white and a main character who's Asian. And the Asian character wants to be Miss Apple Pie, but the white character says, you can't be Miss Apple Pie. My family is, my mother's been Miss Apple Pie. My grandmother's been Miss Apple Pie and I'm going to be Miss Apple Pie. And you don't look like a Miss Apple Pie. You can't be because you're a foreigner. And that led to a conversation during morning meeting about who is more American. Is it the white protagonist or is it the Asian protagonist? And we then had a very, very honest, con it became quite a, a very revealing uh, conversation because one of the students actually said, can I point out and tell you who is American and who is perceived? She said perceived as American and perceived as not American. And she pointed to every child in the class and said, you're American, you're, you're not because of the color of your skin or the accent. She actually started with me and said your accent and the way you dress and the color of your skin. And when I asked the class, is that the perception that the world has, they all agreed that it was. And then we talked about how we can change that perception. 
And mm -hmm. so from a difficult conversation about race, who is American, we then move to now joy, uh, thinking about hope. How can we change this narrative? And kids actually said, we need to have this discussion that we just had starting very young, maybe in kindergarten. We need a text so we can talk about this because what we see in the media, what we see in photographs is what is creating these stereotypes about who is American. And children came out with the idea that we need to have these conversations. So I think that there's always a painful uh, a story ends hopefully in hope and joy. And um, I think firstly, studying it, studying your whatever you want to teach, the, the, the ideas, studying those ideas collaboratively and then trying it out in the classroom and then getting the feedback from the children. Constantly listening to them is so important in order to do this work. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, the, the topics that, that you're presenting or that your students are exploring are topics that kids are experiencing on a regular basis. And you're using children's literature as a vehicle for these conversations. So you're exactly. not, you know, you're not fishing for ideas or, or churning the pot intentionally. What you're really trying to do is to really provide that text that does provide opportunities for reflection and those opportunities for windows, mirrors, and sliding doors. But when you think about that in your classroom, where are you finding text? What kinds of texts are you sharing with students? What kind of text do you have in your classroom library? If teachers are thinking, you know, they're listening maybe to this podcast and, and wishing that they had some more diverse text on hand. So I do look at We Need Diverse Books. Their website has some really good texts that come out every, you know, they have a a publication that comes out all the time. So I look at those um, websites to get, get text. My librarian is my greatest resource. And uh, we have a fantastic um, language arts supervisor who's constantly also uh, giving us direction in that, in that regard. You know, I don't know, Keisha Carrington-Smith is uh, part of PBC, who was the chair for the previous conference. She is also the language arts supervisor at our school. And she gives us a lot of direction in that regard. You know, so we studied, for example, stamped for kids. And we also have a box that comes in our school, which is a racial literacy box, which has got all kinds of books that we can use to teach this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we need to have leadership that is looking at racial literacy seriously. We need to look at um, organizations like We Need Diverse Books. That's also, you know, providing us with a lot of uh, supports in this in this area. And then, of course, I think we need to be uh, reading all the time. We need to be curious about what children are reading. I think that's the biggest thing that teachers need to do. We need to read alongside our children, and we need to be reading the text that they are reading and consuming in order to be able to have these conversations with them. So I think that um, that's how I've gone about it. So I've got, a, I've got books that represent, I look at the students in my classroom when they come in, I, I always ask them to do a little bit of a, a video or an, or an audio recording of their name as, as well as tell me something about their interests, what they like to read. I do a kind of inventory in the beginning of the year, even before they come into the classroom. But thanks to COVID, we have 
uh, all these uh, you know new tools that we can use to get to know the students even before they step into the classroom. So I get to know how to pronounce their name uh, before they come in. I ask them to tell me about their favorite books before they come in. I, I ask them to tell me a little bit about their culture before they come in. And then of course, the first day of school is all about identity building. So when I get all this information, I use this to look at what are the books in my room that will be first mirrors to the children in this classroom? Do I have enough books for the Asian Americans? Do I have enough books for the African Americans to the Caribbean Americans? And we are finding a lot of dearth in that area. You know, We don't have many books in that uh, I had a Dominican kid and there was no book until one of them, one, you know, there was one picture book that came out uh, about being Dominican and being pr proud of it. So I look at that and think about mirrors. And then of, of course, all of these books, which are mirrors to some children would be windows to others. Mm -hmm. And I tell kids who are reading the Harry Potters and the Rick Riordans, which are also fantastic literature, I tell them, my job is to introduce you to something different from what you've been reading all the time. My job is to expand your diet. So I hope that you will trust me and you will try these out. And there are some books that you might not enjoy reading and that's fine, but I want you to try them out. So I definitely suggest books to kids. While my library has a wide choice of all kinds of books, I will also kind of suggest certain kinds of books to kids so they get a, a window into somebody else's life that is different from theirs. And then I will also, you know, gift them sometimes, hey, this book is something you're going to really love because it's about a kid just like you. And then you'll see the kid's eyes just go, you know, opening out wide. So I think the teacher's role is to entice children with books. We have to sell these books to them. Mm -hmm. And for that, we need to read the books ourselves. I love that, the way that you just painted that picture of your classroom and coming into the, you know, coming into this space as a learner and having a teacher who has already figured out some things about me and learned a little bit about me and then having something that may be appealing. Uh, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the importance of reading volume. And the importance of students really, you know, readers consuming text. And that doesn't happen without choice, without that enticement, without that energy that you can create in readers workshop of, of students sharing some of their favorites with their friends and with other students in the classroom. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the role of choice. Um, you mentioned that your students are choosing a lot of books, but then you're also making some suggestions and, and, and perhaps some gifting. What does choice look like for you? Yeah, so I think choice is a very, very tricky word, right? Because if you leave everything just to choice in the classroom, you are not going to um, get kids to be aware of all the nuances of life, really. Because then, you know, if, it's like if I like chocolate and I only want to be eating chocolate, my choice is to only eat chocolate. It's not going to be good for me, right? So as an, the adult in the room, it is really important to talk to kids about having a balanced diet because a balanced diet is what's healthy for you. And I tell kids, you can choose the dessert, but I am going to help you choose your main course because the main course is what's going to nourish you the most. The dessert is the fun stuff that you can have. So when we are, when they have to choose a baggie of books, I'm actually with them. I'm always guiding students when they're choosing books and introducing them to these new books that are coming out because they might have heard 
their parents and they might have heard of old literature, right? Books mm-hmm. that have been there for years and years, the classics and the Harry Potters and the Rick Riordans and the um, uh, and the, uh, the Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And there's that they're all great. I've read Diary of a Wimpy Kid and it's really fantastic. But I also want to introduce them to this new literature that's coming out that they wouldn't read if I didn't tell them about it. So the you know all the new books by diverse authors they have to be introduced to children so sometimes i'll do a book talk and sometimes when i'm doing a read aloud i'll have three four and i'm giving them choice to choose it but i'm book talking these books and all these books are books that they might never have heard of if i didn't read it to them you know so i think choice has to be like i said the main course has to be guided with the teacher and then you give children now you choose two books of your own you know whatever you want that you want to read here are the other books that I'm really strongly suggesting you try out and children then come to you because they know that you're interested in the books that they're reading and that you're going to talk to them about it hmm. so I think almost that's like librarian in your in your little classroom library I think that's the role that the teacher has to play. It's hard because that means you have to be, uh, you know, up to date with what's happening in children's literature. You have to be following all these uh, trends. You have to be researching books. You have to be listening to podcasts. You have to be doing all of that. But for me, I think um, having a connection with the school librarian is really critical because they are doing that work and then talking to them about what's uh, what's trending right now, like what is good for children to learn about, what are some things that we could have a debate about, all of those are important, I think, uh, to have a good, you know, a good reading diet for our children. Absolutely, and that gets back to our big topic today, which was this idea that text really can be a vehicle for deeper understanding, developing empathy, finding joy, making connections with others, and exploring difficult or challenging topics. Um, you've mentioned a couple times today the importance of talk yes. and the importance of discourse. And you said, you know, even sometimes there can even be a little bit of heat. When you think about the role of talk in your classroom and you think about um, the importance of talk, what recommendations might you have for, for other educators who are really just starting this journey of, of helping their students dive into the, that deeper level of understanding with text. That is, you know, th- this whole concept of talk is something that I'm really, really curious about and want to continue learning more about because it is a very, very powerful medium for people to understand each other, right? Uh, half the world's, world's problems, I believe, can be, may not be solved, but can be addressed if people talked to each other. And I think communication is so important. And it, And in the classroom, I think many years ago, I did contact Cornelius about this talk because he was he was doing a lot of that uh, at that point in time. And he told me something that was very, very interesting. He said, you always start small and use time as a warden for conversations. So you start with simple turn and talks where you're just talking to a partner and that's just 30 seconds long. Then you expand it uh, to talking with four people and that becomes double right from 30 seconds it becomes a minute or two and then you expand it to eight people and then it becomes the bigger classroom so you start small with partnerships and then expand the number of people involved in the conversation 
you start with uh, 30 seconds and you expand it, uh, with, you know, with the number of people and end it at like nine minutes, eight minutes, something like that. Because longer than that, it becomes harder for children to keep going. But also the topic of the conversation can also start simple and then become more complex. So starting with who, you know, something about you, turn and tell your partner something about yourself. Then turn and tell your partner what you think about the characters in the book. Turn and tell your partner what would you do if you were the character in the book. Now, no, not just turn and tell your partner. No, you've got four people, eight people talking about something more complex, right? You started with something simple. Then you have more people talking about something more complex. And then let's get into a grand conversation about who is more American, this character or this character, or who is to blame this character or this character. So you start simple and then you start expanding it. And I think that was one thing that I did learn from Cornelius. So I definitely want to give credit and I use it all the time in my classroom and keeping time as a warden. Another thing that I actually, I called um, Dolly Chug, who had written this, who's written this book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Uh, she's quite a guru on implicit bias. Um, she told me about heat and light. And she said, you want conversations that create light and are not focused on the heat. And so as a facilitator of a conversation, you want to be making sure that that's happening. So when it starts becoming too heaty, you're going to say, hey, listen, let's just stop, pause and think about what the other person said, because that's what we are, uh, we are essentially here for, is to listen and to learn that there are people who might have a, an opinion different from you. And that's important for you to know that there are always two sides to a coin, right? So to know both sides, it's just the awareness that this conversation is going to lead to, not for you to change your mind or, uh, or, or, or any of those things. The third person I think I've really tried to learn from is Priya Parker. I heard about her in some podcast on NPR, and she does a lot of work around negotiations and heated conversations. And she too talked about the you know heat and light and the whole idea of conversations for awareness, you go into a conversation not to change somebody's mind, but you go into a conversation to get to know what the other person is thinking. And when you go into a conversation like that, you're far more, you feel far more successful. And also the idea that there is no closure to a conversation. I think these kind of help me kind of structure my conversations in my classroom. Absolutely. And it sounds like authentic, rich discourse, not a debate, not an argument. It really is an opportunity for curiosity and for students to stay in that, in that space of, of wonder and getting to know other perspectives and asking questions rather than arguing or taking a stand. Exactly. And also the importance of listening in talk. Yes. <laughs> right? Because everybody just wants to talk, 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 and they're not listening and responding. So we, uh, when we are doing this partner talk initially, like in second grade, I remember doing this with children, is I give them a bunch of unifix cubes. And I'll say that we're going to see who can build the tallest tower. That means I speak, you listen, maybe you paraphrase what I'm saying, and then you respond. 
this paraphrasing part really helped because that means they have to really listen to what their partner is saying. They have to re-say it in their own words. Then they have to respond. So it's really teaching kids to, we, I did a lot of this work with the children to really listen to what the other person is saying before you start seeing your point of view. You want to build on the conversation rather than just shoot my point of view, then your point of view, and everybody's just shooting in the dark, you know? So teaching kids all of these are, is so important in order for us to have that big grand conversation that happens at the end. There's a lot of small little building blocks that need to be put in place first in order for this bigger conversation to happen. Oh, wow. Gita, thank you. That just, I mean, that just really summed it up at that importance of listening yes. and listening to one another and paraphrasing and asking questions, regardless if I'm an eight-year-old in second grade or if I'm 48 um, and an adult navigating this world. Um, so as we wrap up today, you know, really thinking about our time together and thinking about moving forward. If you think about you know, the beginning of a new school year, we have that kind of blank slate, if you will. What is your call to action for your fellow educators and leaders and school professionals? I think my call to action is do something. It's better than doing nothing. Don't be a bystander. And I'm reminded of Martin Luther King's uh, famous quote, if you can't run, then walk. I mean, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Um, do the small little things. You know, I think we have to take small risks. You don't have to take big risks and start some, you know, big grand work right on day one. But I, have, I think we have to do small little things and collaborate. There are lots of people in the building who want to do the work. They just need someone to hold their hands and I mean, they need some support um, to start the work. So I think that finding those people and doing small little things is my call to action. Gita, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mishnu, for having me. It was such a wonderful conversation. I agree. Thank you so much for listening in. The Phenomenal Teaching Podcast is brought to you by PEBC, Public Education and Business Coalition, and is intended to elevate the strands of the PEBC teaching framework, which is illustrated in Wendy Wardhofer's book, Phenomenal Teaching. PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, but works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding for each and every learner. PEBC provides customized on-site professional development and coaching for schools and districts, facilitates a variety of institutes and seminars, and offers an array of online learning experiences for all educators. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org.